0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas will change the world. Uh, I have been for some time, way back in my youth, trying to answer the question, Who am I? And uh, because I'm socialized along with the rest of you, that Who Am I took an educational journey, took a uh, vocational journey, and that uh, who Am I still was there, still striving to understand who I am. I found my identity through my craft, if you will, and, uh, and did very well, prospered. And uh, like many uh, in uh, exploring the craft, was promoted through a series of management turns, Uh, where my identity became uh, realized through uh, the tribal efforts, if you will, of a team, later a department, later a company. And those journeys uh, had no recipe. There was no guidebook for those journeys. And so I, quite frankly, was remarkably encouraged when I ran across Mark L. Vincent. Mark uh, is... Uh, a seasoned executive advisor and process consultant these days, but he's been on a journey through nonprofits and for-profits where he's been a student of leaders and how they act through their organizations has been an advisor to CEOs in that process. And when he wrote his white paper, which we'll be providing a link to on the three turns of leaders, I just, it just hit home. It resonated. Mark, Mark, Thank you so much for joining us on The Great Conversation.
1: This is a pleasure, and I look forward to the conversation.
0: I, uh, I'm i sure you've run across many people like me. That summary I just gave at the opening, many people trying to find their identity and not sure, quite frankly, how to describe where they are at any given point. Is that true? Yes, It is the journey. Is it the hero's journey?
1: Some um, make it heroic. And of course, um, there is going to be, uh, we can assume it, tragedy along the way. So there will be tragic events and there will be heroic events. And the leader who keeps leading and not just managing is is going to be pointing to what is next and will... Occupy a learning place. They'll, they'll, they'll stri- let's change that. They'll strike a learning posture along the way. That's the one thread that runs through them all.
0: Learning posture. How do I recognize that posture in another? Because it seems like it's absolutely essential if I'm going to be hiring people at any turn in their career.
1: Well, there are a couple of things I look for now. I wish I'd known it earlier in my career, but I look for now when I am talking with someone who's looking for a new position, or maybe I'm helping an organization find someone for that new position, or I've been invited in to sit down with a leadership team and kind of evaluate, where folks are, how open they are, whether they've reached the spot where they, they really need to be or whether there's another kind of trajectory for them. And what I listen for is whether that person is leaning in or leaning away or whether there's this third posture, which is I'm pretending to lean in, but I've got a hand up in the way. So I'll ask questions and try to create space that's protective. That third posture is the most difficult one and the one where I have the least hope when I'm working with such a person, where I would sit down and say, I think you are avoiding what's in front of you. A person who's leaning away can actually name what their fear is. They're articulate about it. You can ask them whether it really needs to be a fear. And sometimes, in fact, quite frequently, they'll be saying, ah, there's nothing to this. I need to lean in. And you can feel that shift happen. None of us leans in at all times and in all places. We're, We're driven to react. But when... Through time and experience, we learn to say, I don't need to react here. There's an opportunity here. I may have to look to find it, but there's going to be an opportunity. I get to learn. I get to grow. I don't know what it is, but I'm open because I know that is the better strategy. And the, the faster I can get to open and away from resistance, the sooner I'll be in this new place and get to enjoy the benefits. And I often compare that because I've lived in the Northwoods a good deal of my life in Wisconsin, that when you go to the lake, that first warm day, late spring, early summer, the air is warm, the water is not. The only way you're gonna enjoy it is just to leap in and start thrashing around, get your body moving. You have to overcome that internal resistance to want to be comfortable in order to go have fun. And we need to take that kind of approach to the opportunities that come, toward the unknown. And so when someone starts to ask questions, not to avoid, but to ask questions to understand, and they can engage curiosity, you know there's a learning posture. And so listening for that, as we describe that new thing that's in front of us, uh, is one way we can know if there is a learning posture that has been struck.
0: I do want to get to your white paper for a second, especially... Uh, now that I've discovered that you're attempting to turn it into a book, which is, in my opinion, you'll all see in in a second as we talk about the three turns, why I think that's so important. But I uh, first let's stay on learning for a second. I'm inheriting a team. I'm I, as I said, I'm I'm going to evaluate the learning posture of my team member. Are they leaning in? Are they leaning away? Are they attempting to block the way, even though they're pretending to learn? Uh, uh, That's very helpful. But let me ask you, what is the best way for a leader to cultivate, no matter what they confront, a learning posture in another?
1: So if I understand correctly, Ron, we're talking about um, someone who's got it, going to inherit a team. They are people that are already there and now they're working with them and they need to discern, is this person ready to go and grow versus uh, having a kind of a resistant wall up? Do I, do I have the well, question? Not,
0: not, not only discern, not only discern, which would be quite frankly, intuitively, I'd want to discern first, but I, I'm also open to the fact, is there something I can do to ah. set the stage to cultivate a learning posture.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me go back to those three uh, approaches that sure. that I think are pretty easy to spot: the lean in, the lean away, or that pretend I'm leaning in but my hands are up to resist. Um, if I am that leader, I'm going to be able to figure that out and uh, figure out what the posture is in another person, as well as offer something that's helpful. If I listen and ask and check in with and get that person talking more than me talking and then asking them what they think about it and see whether they you know, want to engage it or not. Because if I'm one of those persons with my hands up, I'll say all the right words in response to what you tell me as that leader. So um, what we can listen for is whether that person is asking questions about mission and values and how that will apply. So if they're saying, you're this new leader, and here's this thing we're facing, how are we going to do more of what we want to do? If I have an objection, I'll still reference it in light of mission and values, maybe strategy. If I am leaning away, I will ask questions about what does this mean for me? Uh, What about my comp? Uh, What about my division and the things that we're doing? Are you going to protect me? Am I threatened in some way? Those will be the kinds of questions that come up. The person who is pretending to lean in is going to ask philosophical kinds of questions that don't move it. Like, how do you know that this is true? Or where did you get that information? Or what books would you recommend I read? That'll be the stuff that they'll ask. Now, if I'm going to help them, the person who's leaning in, I already know that they're open to learning. Then we might talk about, hey, can can we look at some background pieces here? Or how can we uh, help you be more equipped to actually learn what you're hungry for? Because you might not know what you don't know, you know? So you you dig into that. The person who's leaning away, I can actually describe what I'm seeing. And if they're open to learning, they will correct you know you're right. I've been afraid. This kept me up at night. Thank you for helping me reset. Can I can I start again? They'll 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 make that move. We all need that grace. That person who's in the middle, that's much harder because you have to kind of sniff that out and then you still want to name it. You still want to say I hear you saying one thing and doing another. I hear you afraid. Is that true? And if they start to deny that, Blame somebody else for the problem. Um, continue on in that same vein. That's a warning sign. Uh, I would say when it comes to status and whatever you want to do as a leader, that should be at least a flashing amber light.
0: And, and then you're on a journey, right? Because yes. now you're on a journey to see if you can break through and you have a timeline if you're a leader in a business because that i would imagine that third personality you're talking about is the one that could be a virus.
1: Yes, very much so and um the breakthrough actually if i'm that leader i'm not responsible for that breakthrough. They are responsible for their breakthrough. I'm responsible for setting the table where they can, you know, dine from that or not and i'm responsible for how long i let that run.
0: Very good. Very good. You and I have talked about a hero's journey, if you will. It is a heroic journey. This the questions I opened up with at the beginning. The questions of who am I and what's my contribution? What are the what are the unique characteristics that turn into skill sets over time and uh, with a learning DNA? Um, I can begin to master those things. Uh, take us on this, what I call the hero's journey of turn one, turn two, and turn three. That's in your wonderful paper on LinkedIn. I'm going to make sure we link to it. But also, you're, you're spending your time, your life writing this book about.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll try to keep it condensed because there's so many things that, of course, absolutely. Could And this is actually very deep and long-running wisdom. I didn't invent this. Um, I just found a way to describe it. But we talk about these phases in life, these three um, seasons, particularly in adult life, age 20 to 40 after you've been formed, 40 to 60, 60 to 80. Some would put it on different numbers. Um, Hinduism would point to four turns, but it still follows the same progression. They would say in the fourth turn, you're preparing for death. Uh, but your life before that is occupied by these three stages. And that first, you're becoming aware, coming into your own. So I like to talk about this as artisanal, like I'm becoming an artisan. I am learning to lead myself. I am learning to manage my emotional wake. I am learning what I'm gifted at. I'm learning what I enjoy the most vocationally. And if I'm in a sensitive and caring organization, they're going to be on that journey with me, giving me opportunities, showing me grace when I fail as I'm trying to grow up. I'm going to learn if people want to be teamed with me or if I'm better working by myself and people follow me or if I'm a better follower and cultivate my followership. I mean, we learn all these things and I kind of find my lane. And let's recognize that about 80% of the workforce, this is where they will spend their career. They will not go to a turn two or turn three. And if that's happening, it's outside of work because they're at the front line. They're the best craftsperson. They're the one who can do all that tool and die stuff and teach others how to do it, minimize errors. Um, That's where we are. There are some people that discover and they are discovered that they have the ability to lead an organization and they're better at leading an organization. That is their artisanship. And so they begin to actually have a vision for leading an organization. So they move into turn two, which would be we want you now to lead an organization and to lead others. You don't lead leave leading yourself behind, you bring that with you, but now you're responsible for a whole organization of people and the way that that organization runs as it develops people and develops its products and services. And you bring that vision with you. So we might call this now the artist's time Because if you ever look at a public art installation, there's not just one artist there. There is the artist who has the vision, and there are the artisans or budding artists that are helping. If you look at a beautiful piece of architecture, an architect had the vision, but it took engineers and general um, contractors and people who work in HVAC, whatever, to bring that building about. So you're in that spot where you're seeing this more complicated kind of a piece. Um, there was a um, LinkedIn uh, database study. Well, LinkedIn did the study using their tiny little database that they have now. And they came out and said, only 14% of people will rise to be a lead of an organization who will end up in the C-suite responsible for the whole of that organization. Now, not everybody's going to succeed in doing that. But... At some point or another, about 14 out of 100 people will be invited to sit in that chair. That kind of follows that 80% never move beyond turn one. And that's not their fault. That's not a bad thing. It's just, again, about abilities and trajectory. So out of that, then, there will be some that have a long tenure. Maybe they founded an organization. Maybe they... um just had a way of working and they had a trusted journey and they've been at a place long enough that almost anything that's happening in that organization has come under their watch and the people who work there came under their watch. Now what begins to happen if they've got a degree of operational excellence is that they have more time and they should use that time to really begin to develop future value for the organization more of its mission and things that aren't figured out yet because the things that are figured out tend to atrophy over time so now you're peering into the mist you're trying to figure out future value and as you begin to do that you discover that succession planning means something more now than it ever did because mostly what you're working at is now going to go into the hands of other people to lead And then the legacy of that also begins to matter. So future value, succession, legacy begins to be where you're at. Now you're not just managing and leading an organization that exists. You're creating again. You're bringing something that's messy and uncoordinated back to make it operational. And so we start to say, okay, at that point, you're now like a maestro. You're composing the symphony. You're writing the music that other people will play. You are now feeding the artistry of others. And the one thread that runs through all three of those turns that they're done successfully is that that person is a learner. They come to their workplace and turn one knowing they've got to learn. They move into the C-suite and they know that everything they've learned is now not going to particularly help them. It's their ability to learn that's going to help them to move from becoming an expert marketer to becoming a very competent executive, moving from a horizontal, excuse me, from a vertical line to a horizontal play. And when you move into that third turn, you're going to, we always say the business needs to move up and to the right. You're moving down and to the right, figuring out what will make it up and to the right. What is going to be the the lift under the wings of the future? And how do you do that? You've never done that before. You have to learn. You have to figure it out. So you can't come at it saying, I'm all competent. What you can come at it as is, I know how to learn and I intend to learn.
0: I think of uh, two trajectories here in every one of these scenes, if you will, in every one of these turns. Uh, The trajectory at the beginning Is downward into my discipline, getting very deep into my discipline, my practice, my profession. Um, And I use all those words intentionally. They're, they're, I hear you, different different things. Um, And so it is the I am. This is who I am. This is um, now pause in this stage because there's a notion here. Uh, in leadership development that we're only going to train those people who have the potential to get to two why is that if 80 percent of people live lives of quiet desperation as Mr. Thoreau said and Gallup says 80 percent are of the employees are actively disengaged or disengaged if that is going on why aren't we helping to develop their perspective of lifelong learning so they can master their craft in phase one? Why why aren't we doing that?
1: I can speak more from a Western and particularly American context. We have a deep-seated prejudice grown up in our business schools that treats the human factor as a commodity. As an input.
0: Possibly even a machine, because possibly even a machine. At the turn of the industrial age, right? Right.
1: A disposable piece of the formula that brings economic wealth. And increasingly with robotics and AI, we say, well, maybe we don't need the human factor anymore. And I'm not being a Luddite here as I talk about that. I'm not an anti-AI person. I have very significant questions about some of those things, but we seem to be making choices not to supplement human development, but to avoid having to develop humans. And as a result, then uh, we can get a robot in place, pay for it over time. If we've got some things figured out, we don't have to employ humans for, we don't have to develop humans. We you know, And so it becomes a way of avoiding. There's just a deep-seated piece that wants to see humans that way, and it keeps showing up. Tied to that is short-termism, which means we are reporting to our investors or our owners on a weekly or quarterly basis. Most of the time, it's monthly. I know a couple of them that actually have to run their numbers three times a day, and that's what's being tracked. So it's so short-term we're not thinking about what do we have 20 years from now. We're just trying to meet our numbers for the plan right now. And we're putting that in the C-suite. Yeah. So the result is uh, we don't want to develop humans and artisans. We can just replace them That's correct. as opposed to we want people for whom this is their master craft and love what they do and take pride in their work and will actually help market what we do because they love their work so much they talk they tell their coworkers. they tell their families they tell their neighbors how much they enjoy the work they get to do because it's so meaningful but that is not what they're saying if they're being treated as a commodity and then we try to counter that with false marketing messages over the top
0: you know even, isn't this beautiful when it really isn't behind the scenes even our socialization educational process um takes the child takes the young person and says you are going to get a job for one reason so you can retire yes you can, you can buy a home you can <laughs> you can put your kids through schools it's it's right. almost treating the system as a machine as well so there's a two-party action going on here yes. Right, and yep. it it inhibits the learning, and quite frankly, the prosperity of that exchange, the yes. prosperity of the human, and the prosperity of the company they find themselves in. It's really yes. tragic, isn't it?
1: Yes. And when you sit down with a, a business leader and say, "Let's get our calculators out. Now let's start calculating what the actual money loss is," as you try to maximize your money within the budget. So what we start calculating is uh, meetings that you have to have twice because somebody is angry and they storm out of the room or people are passive and don't give you what they're really thinking. And they don't reveal it until afterwards when things are undermined. What does that cost in productivity? Or if after a meeting, people have to process their emotional uh, rise, their anger, their fear, whatever. And that's what they're talking about at the, in the parking lot or over their uh, texts with each other while you're actually in the meeting, that, that bleed off is enormous on the productivity side. And you can calculate what that worth is.
0: Yes. So now we, we agree that that exchange is diluted. It's diluted at the human level and also at the tribal lever level, otherwise known as a company. So now we have that, but I said vertical uh, in going into being an artist, being a learner, being a master craftsman, if you will. But the second turn is really interesting because you're going vertical again. Now it's in the leadership of others, helping them prosper personally and professionally and corporately. And uh, so you're going vertical deep into that artistry, if you will, it seems to me. And horizontal across the organization because you're you're trying to connect the value of whoever you're managing into the greater cause. I mean, that that's really an interesting art in and of itself.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I, I like the fact that you talked about that turn one being vertical, but uh, a descent into depth yeah. and strength. As opposed to rising, rising, rising. So I, I've often said, if you know your Greek mythology, leadership development is not Icarus, it's becoming Atlas.
0: That's correct. Yeah,
1: flying higher and more visible. That crashes. You might have your moment, but then it's over. But if you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper, you're able to have more capacity, more strength, being able to support more things and actually have others around that are, you know, helping that to happen. So when you move into term two and it starts to become horizontal because you're moving across the organization, you're not doing it from the top of a pyramid, the pyramid inverts. You're at the bottom of this pyramid, moving up and out to the marketplace you want to serve through a lot of people. But you're not the engineering expert, the research and development expert, the communications and public relations expert, the HR expert all at once. Can't do it all. In fact, the thing that got you there, whatever your expertise was in your craft, you're probably within just a matter of months, not the most expert person in your organization because you can't go to all the meetings. You can't read all the journals. You have to be learning about the org and have to become its best student. That's the one thing you're being paid to do is to be the thinking athlete about
0: that. And it strikes me because I've been in many of the intersectional meetings between managers and executives, intersectional meaning different domains coming together to talk. So imagine a boardroom, if you will, I'm sorry, a man, executive leadership team, mm-hmm. and you've got HR sales, operations, supply chain, finance, and it, 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 the instruction, the learning at this stage is you literally have to learn to speak different languages. It is a United Nations room you're going to find yourself in. So you not only have to learn their language, but to a certain degree, learn their practice, learn their own art history. Does that make sense? Yes, very much.
1: And I would add that as I speak, it comes because I've listened. Hmm. And when I speak, the people on the other side who maybe have a different language, different perspective, whatever, they cannot help but say, you understand us. And then I might offer perspective. But my first impulse is to try and make sure I understand what the head of finance would care about, what the head of HR would care about, because together we are responsible for the whole of the organization first, and second, the arena in which I'm carrying out my service. And it's so often inverted in those executive leadership team meetings.
0: So good, so good. Um, I've always said... Uh, subconsciously to myself, and then later consciously when I taught it, is I'm seeking to, if I'm truly listening, then I need to summarize in my own words, not their words, my words, the understanding of what I just heard, and, uh, and ask if I've got it right. I agree. Yeah, yeah.
1: That slows the process down a little bit. But then we're able to speed up after that because we're talking about the same thing and we're in agreement. We figured out, even if we do have differences, what exactly they are and how we might address them.
0: And I used to call it flipping it from my narcissism to to my um, evocation that I am interested in the other.
1: That's exactly
0: right. (laughs) So the the third one's fascinating. Um, Years ago, I read a a book um, on how do companies... That have a current state, whether it's flourishing or not, have a current state. It's the one they've rested on, the one they're used to, the one they've practiced their artistry in, uh, and they have a business model around it. And I've always often thought, how how do you entertain? Innovation that may be outside those models those mental and Frameworks those business model Frameworks how, how do you do that and I um and I, I, I it was really interesting hearing the stories of CEOs who had wrestled with that realizing if they bring a new idea into a mental and business model framework that's existing that they might actually see that innovation as a virus and try to kill it mm-hmm right? So there was this idea of stepping outside it. When I was reading your third turn, I wrote that down. I go, interesting enough in the third turn that you're going to explain in a second, you talk about going outside and down or into a turn that you don't know where it might be going. Explain the third turn.
1: Well, let's acknowledge from the beginning that someone who is privileged to lead in a third turn at the top of an organization, it's not because they're superior. Uh, nearly as much as that the fact they've been learning and they've had this gift of a long tenure. I mean, there are some really great leaders that get ousted. Things get sold out from under them. Uh, There's a coup uh, that they didn't see coming from the board or something along that line. There's all kinds of reasons someone doesn't have this opportunity, has nothing to do with their character or their capacity. But for some, they're in this spot that they get to do this and to really lead toward a, a future value. With that in mind, you have um, not just the fact that I'm approaching it as a learner, but a a sense that there is going to be a shift. There's always something coming at us that we can't define. And we got to where we are by working through that. So there's no rest. There's no casting aside the hard work and saying it's easy from here as we slide into a third turn. The third turn calls on every gift we've developed and new ones we have to develop as we go towards something that doesn't exist, but is going to need to. Now, two things I might say here. I love the example of looking at the Fortune 500 across a 20 year period and seeing how the names shift across 20 years and the ones that remain like an apple are doing something very different than they started out. Like their main economic engine is not what it was 20 years ago. Uh, I just watched, I'll come to the second one in a minute, but I, I just watched the BlackBerry movie. And I love what happens in that movie. It's worth seeing it on that basis alone, as you have BlackBerry coming to its peak and being so widely sold because they were putting more data into minutes because of the packet release and every phone kind of being its own computer. And then Apple comes along and says, we're gonna put more minutes in the data so that people will spend more time on their phones. So BlackBerry uh, disintermediates the whole cellular phone industry and wins and then can't see what's coming as Apple goes to keyboards that are on the phone, no clicky clacky little press of the button and everything's uh, now in the cloud, right? So they you have these big shifts that that have businesses rise and then fall. And the reason they fall is they can't see what's next. And it was the skill of seeing what's next that made them rise in the first place. So as we move into that space, we get into a very dicey place where we have to figure stuff out. And as we do, it might mean that it's a whole new enterprise. It might mean that what service we're in is going to have to disappear. And that may mean the whole workforce is going to have to turn over, especially if they resist it, but they wouldn't have their jobs at all. If you stayed right where, where you were. And that, that is that, again, it just calls on all the leadership gifts that we have. My second illustration really quickly, Ron would be the, um, the uh what we see with the the uh, electronic vehicles coming out. GM went out there and said we're going to be all electric by 2035. Now we got to figure out a way to sell gas-powered engines in order to finance making the shift and how we ratchet that up and down. They're doing it, knowing that anybody who's running that company has a board seat now is not going to be in those seats when the when 2035 comes in all likelihood. But they're running into some big issues. It's not as environmentally more friendly than gas is uh, when you're mining lithium and having to find new places that you're going to disrupt the environment. And then what? how you handle the disposals of all that stuff. It is not cheaper yet. There's just any number of factors that no one has the complete answers to. And the only way we're going to get there is by learning and by trying to do it in a way that we're casting hope for the future, not just trying to get more wealth now. Uh, That's a very, very tough formula. And so people who go into that with the desire to offer hope, and I often say to our grandchildren's grandchildren, it will call, I'm just repeating myself, it will call on every leadership gift they have.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I think we're the only species that puts off... um, uh, artificial waste.
1: <laughs> I have to say the windmill industry is pumping cement below our farmland. Just tons and tons and tons of it. What we do with gasoline uh, and the petroleum industry and now you know everything being plastic. Try to go on a plastic fast. Try to do everything without plastic. There's just waste everywhere, right? And we have to make hard choices about the downstream effects of our work. In a short-term economy, paying attention just to this month that we hit our numbers, we don't want to think about downstream effects. We keep pushing that off. Somebody else will have to deal with that. So with every product that we make, every service that we render, every expense that we do, we're going to pump carbon in the air, even by our breathing. So what are we going to do about that? And how are we going to live? Well, we're going to have to try and do our best. And we're also going to have to acknowledge the the complications that come on the backside of what we do and to be open to learning how we can further mitigate them, right. how we can uh, own what's wrong and broken and and be ready to try and address it, even as we're trying to bring the good. It, they go together.
0: And uh, the whole learning DNA is all about ownership. Um, that you're, we're looking for in our people, and we want to inspire for themselves to look at too. What are you going to own? If I can summarize, let's see if I can. I, again, urge you all to read Mark's white paper and stay attuned to when he finally starts uh, taking pre-orders for his book, his future book. But I'm going to try to summarize how it impacted me. In the first turn, I'm it's all about I am. I am becoming a master of my practice, my skill, my vocation. It becomes my identity in a in a sense, it becomes who I am. In the second phase, it's about we are. We are our identity through and with others toward a common goal or mission. And in the third stage, it's I and we become, we're becoming something maybe different, something more special. There's a art of seeing here, even before you take the turn, that gets really interesting and really fun. Does that make sense?
1: That's very well said.
0: This has been a great conversation with Dr. Mark L. Vincent. And Mark... Um, I certainly hope we can have some great conversations in the future and meet up soon.
1: That would be my pleasure.